The Scottish Mortgage Podcast Invest in Progress is back. Join the managers and their guests as they go behind the scenes of some of the most innovative companies of our time. Companies like Climeworks, who are pioneering technology to remove carbon dioxide from the air. Or Zobi, who are at the forefront of a new era of aviation developing electric air taxis. Or Aurora, who are building software so that trucks can drive themselves. Hear from the leaders of these exceptional businesses on their vision and what the world could look like if they succeed. Available now on all major platforms. Your capital is at risk. I'm very pleased to be joined in the studio by Ewan Munro, the Chief Executive of Newton Investment Management. Ewan has led the business since joining from Aviva in 2021. Newton has completed a restructure, or maybe we should call it an expansion during that time, and now houses most of the equity and multi-asset strategies in BMY Mellon Stable. Jürgen, welcome. Oh, it's great to be here. Wanted to start on markets and investing, really. You know, whether it's on a recession or, or many things, there are so many mixed signals at the moment. And for a few months now, lots of investors have been telling me that they've kind of never known a more confusing environment. What, what's your take on that? For an active manager and someone who's got a macro perspective, it's mm. actually quite an interesting and exciting environment because um, there's quite a lot of divergence uh, economically. So I would say, you know, you've got inflation and many... Western economies, particularly economies that experimented with quantitative easing and, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and, and also that were probably the harshest uh, exponents of, of lockdowns and right. so on. Um, uh, whereas in emerging markets, which didn't have QE, didn't close down to the same extent, you don't have the inflation, you've got normal interest rates at a different stage of the cycle. In China, mm. you have uh, deflation. Right. Um, and, and so you've got inflation, you've got deflation, you've got moderate growth, you've got potentially higher growth in different parts of the world. That makes it perhaps more confusing, but at least there's a number of different stories on the go for us to invest in. So I guess what is clear, it's a very different environment to that last decade, right? Absolutely. Okay. Um, And you've said before that, you know, that's kind of sometimes dubbed regime change. You said before you you think that's an opportunity for active managers. Yes, I I think it is. So I think, you know, to some extent, you know, we were through, we went through from the global financial crisis Mm. till. 2021, we went through a period where obviously you had, uh, you know, falling uh, interest rates initially and then staying low and then supplemented with quantitative easing. You had stable inflation. You had an era of comparative geopolitical calm. Mm. And so during that period, assets went up. It didn't really matter if you were talking about, you know, long dated uh, treasuries equities, real estate, uh, private equity, everything did rather well during that period because there weren't any major recessions and you had this uh, tide of low interest rates and stable inflation floating all boats. Uh, That isn't actually a great environment for active management because active management is all about thinking about counterfactuals, thinking about what could go wrong, building well-diversified portfolios and none of that counted for much during that period. So I think we're in a much better environment for active management, but probably a worse period for returns. Have you seen evidence that Newton's active managers are kind of taking advantage of this environment yet? Yes, I have. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that Newton has done for as long as it's been around, actually, Mm. since back in the 1970s, is it's had a a thematic approach to uh, investing. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily, if you go back, not always running thematic funds, uh, that's been more of a, a recent thing as uh, wealth managers and so on have wanted to access uh, themes. Yeah. But we, we used it in Newton as a bit of a heuristic shortcut to try and identify what stocks we should be interested in. So what are the, what are the stories that have legs that are going to be multi-year 
opportunities and then investing behind them. And I think, you know, for us, trying to identify what are the long-term long -term themes uh, that we can, we can get behind. And a number of them have, uh, have, have been, been delivering. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, obviously, uh, things like um, cloud computing and so on, electrification of transportation. These are things that have been running for some time. But, you know, we were early enough onto them and have uh, generated alpha from being involved in those things. Okay. And so I, I think that sort of mindset of trying to identify yeah what's going to be a growth area in the future. That all sounds quite techy and growth orientated. I mean, does that thematic approach work with value and income investing as well? Absolutely, it does. I mean, in, in actual fact, I think, to me, those are, those are some of the more exciting themes at the moment. So mm. if I give you one area where clearly with uh, President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act in the US, there's, there's around a trillion dollars going to be spent uh, on uh, on, on building out the, effectively the infrastructure to electrify the, the, the US economy and decarbonize it. Um, huge amount of infrastructure investment around Europe as well with the, the Green Deal and so on. So mm -hmm. uh, governments everywhere are trying to incentivize investment with a combination of carrots and sticks, investment in, in infrastructure. And listed infrastructure is... Uh, I think a really exciting asset category with a very attractive yield. Mm -hmm. um, and interestingly, while there's bag loads of money going into uh, private infrastructure, right. uh, some of these, these you know, companies are have attractive yields, uh, inflation linkage in the contracts. Uh, so something like 6.4% yield with inflation protection mm -hmm. built into them. I think that's incredibly attractive for someone that's looking into potentially 25, 30 years of retirement. I mean, one other thing, you mentioned themes. There's been quite an explosion of thematic passive investing as well, hasn't there? ETFs tracking various things. I mean, do you think, do you think that's been a bit of a kind of pandemic boom that's going to ebb now? One of the dangers with thematic investing is it's quite easy to identify things that have worked, mm. package them up and market them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you're effectively, you're selling a mini bubble in the hope that it becomes a major bubble, if, if you like. Um, and that's fundamentally different from approaching themes as, you know, identifying an investment opportunity. So it's, is it a marketing opportunity or is it an investment opportunity? And I think for, 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 for Newton, we certainly have got this history of looking at it through the investment lens and then, of course, a number of those themes uh, do get packaged up into, yeah. into funds. But, the, you know, at least they have the merit of being things that we believe are going to be sustained over a, a multi-year time horizon. Yeah. I think if it's purely marketing, um, that can be a problem. So uh, I definitely think there's a moral hazard there. In contrast to some uh, people leading asset managers, you used to be a fund manager yourself, right? Uh, uh, lastly, at Standard Life, before you became Aviva Investors, Chief Executive in Aviva 2014. That means you can really engage with these investment questions, perhaps. I mean, where do you, where do you fall on the debate on the 60-40 portfolio after its disastrous 2022? Well, I'm glad to say that I wrote an article, you know, in late 21, yeah. um, saying we're heading for a regime change. Okay, and, well, that was well time. 60-40 might not be a good place to be. And I was really worried mm. uh, on a number of fronts. I was worried about... In the 40% of fixed income, I was just worried about the, the low level of yields and the fact that um, 
there seemed to only be one way for yields to go. Um, and the other thing, with that level of low yields, they could no longer pr provide the protection element that fixed income often provides in portfolios. Yeah. And then even within the 60%, uh, I was a bit concerned that we had pursued this agenda of high growth uh, equities. We're still seeing that with the Magnificent Seven driving uh, the, the stocks in the US. But that obsession with growth uh, it seemed a little bit un unhealthy to me, and obviously indices tend to be characterised with the companies that have done very well mm. in whatever regime you've been in. So if you're moving into a new regime, you might expect leadership to change in terms of the index. So I was concerned with uh, the 60% looking way too much like an index that had done well in a low inflation, low interest rate regime, and I was worried that bonds had lost their protection uh, power. I guess that situation might have reversed. To, to be honest, it's, re it's reversed much faster than I would have expected. Okay. And I actually think that interest rates and bond yields are now starting to look like they, they would actually provide some protection in portfolios. I'm still a bit nervous about the, the very narrow leadership in mm. equity indices. And I think we've probably become a bit too obsessed about the indices rather than about the job that portfolios are actually meant to be doing for the end investor. Um, I don't think indices at some, on some occasions are particularly good portfolios. And so it's thinking about your portfolio rather than just uh, replicating a standard index. I think it's where you could improve that 60% part mm. of the portfolio. I'm going to shift it a bit for, away from maybe equities to, to kind of bond indices. I mean, you know, clearly we've seen last year, you know, long dated bonds can be tremendously volatile. I mean, do you think they have a place in, in anyone's portfolio as they're planning for retirement? I, I'm a bit nervous about longer-dated bonds for mm. a number of reasons. Um, I still, th I think they're getting to a, a more sensible level. And okay. if we did go into a major recession, I would expect that bonds would make some capital gains. So having, them, having that role in your portfolio might make sense. My concern about very long-dated bonds is twofold. One is, you know, we're in a situation where the, the, the US, for example, is running a major current account deficit at a time when growth is quite strong. So it's deficit financing within quite a strong economy. You know, you wonder how much more financing would be necessary if we went into, uh, into a recession. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there does seem to be uh, an over-reliance on governments on the debt markets, which is relying on investors being happy to fund them. And that might be tested at some point. Okay. The other thing is that um, Long-dated bonds have typically been bought by investors that are hedging long-term liabilities. Yeah. So if an insurance company has made commitments to people to pay an income for the next 35, 40 years, the way that it needs to invest to fulfill that commitment is buying long-dated debt. But during that long period when interest rates were very low, mm. it became totally uneconomic to offer such promises. So anybody who'd made them, hedged them, but, you know, defined benefit pension plans with profit policies, individual annuities, they all really stopped. Uh, there weren't new liabilities being created. So we're now in a situation where interest rates are much higher, but the liabilities are already hedged. So I'm sort of wondering, where are the long-term liabilities that are going to have a need for long-dated debt? Mm. And I'm not seeing a lot of them being created. So there's huge supply as governments spend money. There's not going to be uh, the same level of demand. So I, I feel in the future we'll see yield curves 
looking like they used to in olden days. Uh, much more upward sloping. Okay. Uh, and uh, a real premium for taking term duration. What about um, absolute return funds? You know, they, they haven't had a great decade, really. What do you think the future looks like there? You know, absolute return funds, I mean, some, you know, didn't deliver the returns they were expecting, but even some that did deliver, mm. um, you know, a, a small positive absolute return, uh, it wasn't enough to compete with the much more powerful returns that were available from the falling interest rates and the, the asset price rises that were affecting equities and, uh, and, uh, and, and long-dated bonds and so on. So if you've got an absolute return fund during the period, you know, say 2014 to 21, that was delivering, you know, three or four percent, that was still cash plus, because cash was zero. So that was mm. still cash plus three or four percent. Um, but it couldn't compete with Tesla and all of these exciting stocks that were delivering, and even with the index. And so commercially, they failed because um, you could make much easier returns without so much hard work and without so much concern about uh, counterfactuals that never happened, like yeah. recessions and uh, so on. Um, uh, my, my view is we're, we're entering choppier waters um, in terms geopolitically mm -hmm. as well as economically and a lot more vari variability, as I touched on earlier, around the world with you know, emerging markets, China, the US, all perhaps doing quite, quite different things as a response to that. And so, um, so I think the opportunity for um, active management, macro management, mm. and unconstrained investing has just got a lot better. And so you're expecting strong returns from that sector this year? Well, I'm expecting that returns, so obviously if you can do 3% over cash now, mm. you're talking about an 8% return, not a 3% return. So, so to some extent, a lot of these strategies... The hurdle has gone up as well. The hurdle's gone up, but I mean, a lot of those strategies, you were, you were placing some macro bets, but you also had quite a lot of deposits and cash in your, in your sort of portfolio. Mm. So I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that for a good manager, that higher hurdle should be achievable okay. with uh, the, the base level delivered by the, the market and then 300 basis points of macro alpha. I've got to ask, you know, you, you were the architect of standard life of, um, of GARS, uh, Global Amplitude Return Strategies, once biggest fund in the UK, right? Uh, well, they haven't been involved for, for a long time. Uh, Aberdeen has called time on it recently. Were you a bit sad to see its demise? Well, I mean, it was 10 years since yeah. I had anything to do with the, with the strategy. And I really could, so I stepped away from it in 2013. And I mean, obviously, I'm sad that that style of investing had mm. a really tough period. Um, I, and it's the style of investing that I, I really believe in. And, um, and it, was difficult to, it was difficult for almost anyone involved in that to, uh, to, to make a, a commercial case against, as I've mentioned, the powerful mm -hmm. returns available from, from, from passive. So as I said earlier, I think it's an environment where strategies of that nature might become interesting again. So possibly they've closed it down just at the wrong time. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be ironic. Um, you know, so let, let's come back to Newton. I suppose, yeah, so, so how is morale now that this kind of restructuring or, or expansion has been completed and, and what next? We obviously do um, staff surveys to mm -hmm. find out how people are, are feeling. And, um, I, and immediately after the, the, the merger, we were probably slightly higher than we, we are at the minute, to be honest. Uh, sometimes it's external factors that come into play. 
Um, I think a number of staff have been really rattled by um, you know the, the geopolitical tensions that are going on in the world, and right. uh, and so I think there's there's probably a, a an element of that coming through into the mood, but. I think we're really energised as a business. I think what we talk about is this multi-dimensional research platform, which mm -hmm. is much richer now that the two businesses have come together. So Newton in London had strong capabilities in environmental social governance and sustainable investing, um, and obviously did global stock picking in, in large cap, and, and had a expertise in unconstrained uh, absolute return type investing with our, our global real return strategy. Mm. In the US, we had real depth in small and mid-cap US stocks, which is an area rich in innovation. Um, and we also had a quant team uh, based in San Francisco that are able to bring modeling capabilities to Newton that we didn't have before. So when you put it all together, we just have this richer, richer platform. So my, my task has really been to introduce all the different parts of Newton to itself, right? Uh, because some parts were unfamiliar to either the Americans or the or the team in in, in London, um, and I, I'm remiss of me to mention we now have a small team in Japan as well that's mm -hmm. been bringing some some uh, Asian perspectives. As the team's got introduced to itself now that it's bigger, um, I think people are finding great energy from uh, the new tools and techniques that are available to them. And fostering that kind of international interaction, cooperation. Exactly. Interesting. From a brand perspective, I mean, Newton has quite a strong brand in the UK, but the funds are under the BNY Mellon badge, aren't they? Would you ever look at kind of badging them as Newton again? I don't think so. I think one of, okay. one of the things that, um, you know, we face in asset management, and you must hear this, Jeremy, is, is fund managers are they're told to be two different things. So they're told to be big because everybody needs economy of scale and relevance and what have you. And then we're told to be focused. Yeah. Um, but unless you're unless you're focused on a massive area like passive investing or liability-driven investing or something like that, it's difficult to get big without losing focus. Right. Um, and I think that to cut through that, I actually think the strategy that we have at BNY Mellon is is ideal because we are big. We've got whatever it is, 1.8 trillion of assets on the platform. And so the BNY Mellon distribution machine can get to work selling what Newton does as well as Insight, as well as Walter Scott. We have relevance with the fund gatekeepers because mm. we're BNY Mellon, the 1.8 billion brand, not the Newton, you know, 110 billion gotcha. active manager. But then within, when you get below that, we're actually focused. So I'm focused on active equity and multi-asset investing. I'm not trying to do anything else. So I think that focus and scale is actually addressed well with the structure we've got. You know, in terms of the fund mix, I mean, is there anywhere you want to bring more focus or, or, or where do you want to expand? It sounds like kind of thematics is, is, is where a lot of the interest is. Yeah, there's a fair amount of interest in thematics. I mean, I think where I think we, we have more to offer and mm. um, we've got an example of this in the UK this year is is bringing it all together for our clients. You know, if you offer a thematic fund, essentially it's on the understanding that somebody else is in charge of the overall solution. And so they're bringing in that, you know, electrification of transportation idea. They're combining it with ideas from other managers, their own internal research and so on, and they're building a sensible portfolio. We believe Newton can compete in the space where it's actually designing the end-to-end the -end solution. 
And we did, we, did, we had a successful launch of a future legacy range of strategies mm -hmm. this year in the UK market. And really it was down to, you know... So to be clear, I think that's, that's, that's a multi-asset range, right? But it's, it's, a, it's, it's focused a multi on kind of risk-rated portfolios. Exactly. So it's focused on risk-rated portfolios. So Controlling when, the volatility. Exactly. So when I arrived at Newton, I could see that clearly Newton had outstanding mm. multi-asset investment performance. But we weren't making enough traction with IFAs advising people with their DC pension arrangements. When we discussed this with the distribution colleagues at BNY Mellon, um, one of the things that became clear is advisors like to advise. They like to sit in a certain way. They like to sit down with clients and talk about the risk tolerance. And then once they've got a solution, it needs to stay within that risk tolerance. And our existing product range, while performance was very strong, we were jumping out of, uh, of any sort of risk bucket that was set. And so it was really just a question of, we need to build a set of solutions that constrains ourselves into these predefined risk budgets, make sure they're suitable for the advisors. And so, and so we built that. And because mm. we were building it in 21 stroke 22, and we were conscious that we were at an inflection point for markets, we were able to think about maybe bringing areas like income equity and so on into the strategies in a much greater way than perhaps others in the marketplace would have done mm. because we felt that was more suitable for the environment and also for that client base. Okay. And so that's, the, that's something where we clearly listened to clients, listened to our distribution colleagues, built something appropriate. Yeah. And, and what I'd like to do is just go market by market around the world, get the right partners and, and, do more and build, of that. build more of those solutions. Yeah. And how's the reception been for the future legacy range so far? It's, it's been very, very strong. I think it's done two things. So obviously, as we've uh, developed that and uh, positioned it in the marketplace, it's helpfully shone a spotlight on the very strong mm. uh, multi-asset performance that, that we have. And so what we've seen is we've seen some money going into future legacy, but it's very new. Um, and so there's, uh, there's all sorts of vetting procedures, doesn't have a very long track record, but we've, we have seen advisors pick it up and run with it. But we've also seen money flowing into our, uh, our legacy uh, multi-asset products. We also brought a multi-asset moderate fund because we, there was a bit of a gap in that range that's, uh, mm -hmm. that's landed well with advisors as well. Something I wanted to ask about is private markets. You know, there's so much hype around this. Um, you know, what do you think? I mean, do, do, you, do you kind of buy the hype in the industry? I'm very sceptical. I mean, I think I, think, uh, I touched on infrastructure yes. um, earlier. So listed infrastructure mm. um, is trading at a bit of a discount to uh, private infrastructure. They're exactly the same assets. Which seems crazy, right? When you have they're a readily, exactly readily realizable asset. But exactly, plus we're seeing things like some of the, there's about 300 billion of dry powder mm. about to be deployed in private infrastructure. And one of the things they're doing is they're actually buying the listed infrastructure. So Sydney Airport shares were delisted earlier this year as private money went in. The largest um, a power producer in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's a major private infrastructure Canadian firm has just got clearance to, to, to make an offer from the competition authority to make a, an offer for them. So these are private infrastructure buying the listed sector at a premium. So I'm sitting there thinking, well, why wouldn't I just 
own the listed one. I've had to deal with a little bit of price volatility, of course, mm. but um, it still seems to be of great interest to the, 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 private, the private money. The other thing is... So in, can I just ask, so yeah. what, what do you think is going on there? I mean, is it just a case of... You know, these private markets players do, doing an amazing sales job? or, or what, I, think what's an, going I, think, I think there's an element of that. I think there's an element of a, mm. s- some, uh, some investors quite like the lack of transparency in price. It makes them feel better that the price doesn't move day to day. Right, I see. Um, but I think, you know, we all have to accept we're all operating in the same economy. And just because the price doesn't move day by day, it's going to be impacted by the same economics. I'm sort of looking at um, you know, the, 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 the fact that you've got NAV financing of private equity uh, at the moment. Uh, private equity books are refinancing themselves at the, using NAV loans, paying double-digit rates of interest. And it needs to be a really good investment that you can borrow at double-digit rates of interest and still make a return on equity. So mm. I'm, I, I'm sort of of the view that a number of these books, they're trying to survive until interest rates become lower. But I think we're going to have high interest rates for quite some time. You know, there's been a bit of a proliferation of, you know, these kind of alternative income areas, things like song royalties last decade, um, which have drawn a lot of interest and, and similarly have come under pressure with private interest rates. Do, do you also think that kind of went a bit far in the end? People lost sight of just, you know, dividend-paying equities? Not really. I mean, I, th- I think, mm. I think, I think, I think um, you need to get the right price. But um, mm. there was, it was inevitable that if people were buying income-producing assets, that when the level of the risk-free rate, of it, you know, they were clearly interest rate sensitive. So when interest rates reset, then there would need to be... Yeah, a, going to be an there was going to be a reset on, mm-hmm. on those prices as well. I don't have such a big issue with, with where it's been a reset just because interest rates have reset. Mm. Where there's been no reset, but you know feel well that the enterprise is going to have to refinance itself at higher rates of interest, that's where I've got more concern. Because then there could be a sort of, you know, the house of cards could fall over. Cliff edge at some stage. Maybe that's a bit strong, but anyway. Well, you know. (laughs) I suppose, um, you know, another thing I wanted to ask about is cash. It seems like whether it's financial advisors, um, or even, you know, I spoke to your head of distribution, Mellon's um, head of distribution in the UK recently, Michael Beveridge, and he said there's lots of these conversations where people are kind of struggling to get people invest versus cash at 5 6%. Again, is that just one of these things? It's a cyclical thing and then it goes away? I can understand the temptation because, um, mm. you know, people have been getting zero on their cash for a long time and yeah. all of a sudden now it's 5%. And, and they see all these you and, know, and, geopolitical and, issues, and they see uncertainty the ge- and stuff. Absolutely. Plus, as the market or as, you know, during that period when interest rates went from zero to five, it was quite destabilizing for long-term assets. So mm. the long-term asset books that were invested in typically didn't have a great period. One of the the things that they may be uh, getting wrong is the fact that um, you know inflation is. I think last UK inflation print was six point seven, hadn't gone down. So when inflation is six point seven and you're getting five, you're still going backwards. You're still locking in a negative real you, return. You are, you are, and 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 that's where I think um, you know I I'm a huge advocate of investing in real companies that are able to pay 
decent dividends that will and, and that will have the pricing power to, to keep pace with inflation. Yeah. And um, and that's why I'm a big fan of the equity income strategies that we, that we run at Newton. That's um, a hurdle that we have to overcome, uh, just because people are so pleased to be getting five percent. Right. Um, and indeed, five percent may be a great return of inflation that's going to go back down to two percent quickly. But um, I think there's a number of factors in the world at the minute that, to me, make that unlikely. I suppose the last question, Ewan, and it's kind of related. I think it's fair to say during the pandemic there was, you know, this swell of interest uh, from retail investors in investing in markets, particularly among younger yeah. demographics. That has kind of endured a bit. I suppose, what do you make of that trend? And, and do you think kind of traditional asset management firms have been able to capitalise on it? I don't think we've been able to capitalise as well as we might. And I think, I think one, of the, one of the problems with the, you know, the, the rise of interest it wasn't really, in my view, an interest in investing. It was mm. an interest in speculation. Right, GameStop, and so, meme and stops. And so GameStop, meme stops, uh, you know, Bitcoin, yeah. things, you know, you know, NFTs. So there was, there was a, to my mind, investing is it's not as exciting as that. It's a, it's a bit more, um, you know, boring. You have to think about uh, cash flows. You have to think about the robustness of the companies, the size of the market they're investing in, etc. And so, just investing in something because it's going up, because people are talking about it on Reddit mm. or whatever, that's that's not investing, uh, and that's quite different culturally from from really what it's like in a, a proper asset management firm that's that's trying to do some long term investing. And what's it take to convert those people, in a word, or, or in a sentence? Or is that hard to say? I think they need to lose some money, and many of them have. <laughs> and then they might come back to uh, their senses and, and maybe even think, maybe we should get some professionals to help us with this. OK, well, on that note, I think that's all we've got time for today. So thanks very much for coming in. OK, thank you. The Scottish Mortgage Podcast Invest in Progress is back. Join the managers and their guests as they go behind the scenes of some of the most innovative companies of our time. Companies like Climeworks, who are pioneering technology to remove carbon dioxide from the air. Or Joby, who are at the forefront of a new era of aviation developing electric air taxis. Or Aurora, who are building software so that trucks can drive themselves. Hear from the leaders of these exceptional businesses on their vision and what the world could look like if they succeed. Available now on all major platforms. Your capital is at risk.